Johnny Wall Talks. This is your host, Brad. Uh, with us, as usual, is our producer, Devin. That's me. And joining us today for uh, a first time, another attorney that works with us here, and his name is Joe. Hello, everybody. He's the second most handsome. The other one is me. Oh, I'll take it. That's so. an official vote that's been taken in our office, clearly. Yeah. Yeah, he's the real ladies' man, but I'm I don't I don't discriminate, so I'm for both genders. Oh boy, getting off to a good start here today. The uh, topic for today is a little bit different than what we've done um, in some of our other episodes. We're going to talk a little bit about the personal injury world. You get um, lots of discussions about personal injury attorneys. You hear them be called ambulance chasers, sort of portrayed as the guys and ladies out there chasing down car crashes and just trying to make as much money as they can. Certainly, making money is part of the personal injury world, no doubt about that. But there are a lot of good examples of the way that attorneys use the civil law and the force of monetary uh, penalties, if you will, yeah, there's bad eggs in every profession. And, of course, you know, the world operates on money. Nothing can be happening for free, especially with how much time and dedication it takes for these cases and how long civil cases can be drawn out. But we want to give you a face behind that, and we want to kind of show you just the things that brought valuable change that resulted from personal injury. Now, of course, it's not going to be like a car crash and you end up suing the other insurance company. They don't want to give you the money you want. That can be life-changing for a specific person. But a lot of people like to look down on that and say that they're just out for money and people are greedy and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's not that's not necessarily the case. And you'll see in a lot of these that the people just want their injuries that they otherwise wouldn't have had if this did not happen. They just want their injuries covered, not even money for their pain and suffering. And basically the corporations tell them to go get fucked. And at the same time, you have to be honest with yourself that if you're in a position where you could sue a company because they've done you wrong for millions of dollars – you're going to jump at that chance. And if not, I'd hope you'd give the chance to me because I will definitely not, I will not let that opportunity slip from my fingers. Well, and, 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 you know, in the civil world, we have, we have the criminal world where if the prosecutor is able to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt, you, you know, in some states sentenced to death. Um, when you've hurt somebody, you've injured them, you've caused them permanent damages. They're going to alter the rest of their life. The only system we have, the only mechanism we have to try to, in some way, make that a little bit better or right is to award uh, monetary damages so that not just to make that person's life a little bit easier and to recognize the long-term injuries and suffering that they, they're, they're going to have to deal with going forward, but also as a disincentive to the corporations that uh, might be involved in these cases to do things that uh, could put people in harm's way. Yeah, and continue that, continue like their actions as, as they had been prior. <clears throat> and with that, you know, you would think that the reason why that we can even do this is for a reason. And what we're about to highlight is the perfect reasoning behind that. And if you think about it, you know, maybe you've been wronged before, but there wasn't any monetary gain that you could get from it. Not even if you were looking for monetary gain, but because there was no monetary anything involved, you weren't severely injured, there wasn't any real remedy that you could take just to e even let the company know or the state know or the precinct or whatever it is that did you wrong, that you felt wronged in that situation. You know, telling one person is different than telling the organization and, you know, maybe even getting a collective po apology. And 
you know, that can be upsetting in some ways. Like, the goal isn't always the money. It's the fact that they did you wrong, and you just want them to fess up to that, and you want them to make some changes so that way other people in the future don't have to experience that. And so that, unfortunately, the only way that we can have that with these massive corporations is by hurting them financially. Because if you think about it, what can you do to a corporation to make them stop doing a behavior that is negative to the overall general public? And, you know, other than cutting them out of the free market, which we can't do because we have a free market for the most part, the only real way you can do that is by hurting them financially. So it's more of just a means to an end and not always the money being the start and end. I think it's hard to uh, criticize a lot of the plaintiffs in these cases for being greedy because I think a theme that you'll see throughout um, the cases we talk about today are uh, greed from the the corporations and the lengths that they will go to to avoid paying um, what is not that much money to them to somebody who has been severely harmed. So anytime somebody criticizes one of these plaintiffs for being greedy, I always uh, encourage them to look at the corporations and the lengths the corporations are actually going to in terms of greed on their end. I feel like people are less likely to paint a corporation as greedy because they know that the corporation or business's main model is to make money anyways, and they're not necessarily human, quote-unquote, whereas a person is just a person. And, you know, that one person getting X amount of dollars, it's easy to paint them as an individual having a characteristic flaw of being greedy because, you know, they weren't born just to make money, whereas you can argue that is the whole point of the corporation. But at the same time... We, we, we don't want corporations in America that are getting rich off the backs and hardships and making life harder for other people. Like That seems con- completely contradictory to what a company should be able to do, and yet they manage to get away with it for quite some time until something like these personal injury cases come because someone gets severely injured, and it was something that they either 100% knew about, 100% could have avoided, but it cost too much money. Well, and that's one of some things we'll dive into here is that it's not just they don't want to pay the money to the individuals. Uh, It's not that they don't want to uh, maybe acknowledge there's something wrong with their product. It's that the product is selling a lot. They're making a lot of money off the product and stopping making the product or making a significant change to the engineering of the product is going to cost so much money that they start thinking that it's not worth it. it. Right. That... Placing monetary value on human life and saying it would cost us more to fix it. And that's where it really gets a pretty evil twist to it. Right. And I mean, I'm a very capitalist-minded person, so I can understand the hard questions that, you know, you just spent two years of your life making X product, and then it's supposed to be your golden child, and then you release it, and then ends up costing a lot of money, and the only way that you can save it is by not telling people You know, like, I can understand having to grapple with that hardship. But at the end of the day, when people are getting severely maimed, injured, killed, you know, these are things that you, you, it it takes a lot of, you know, morality, but to fess up and just admit that there was a problem. But when there's a lot of money involved, like, that can be very, very hard to do so. So there's, these are going to be some examples. We have three examples for you guys. We want to talk about what the company did that was wrong, things related to the actual facts of the case and how that not just that it changed one person's life, but how it impacted the rest of the nation, potentially the world and this, you know, other, other, especially European countries might see the legislation that we have getting put into place and realize that they may have the same thing happening over on their side of the pond. So these are things that actually have impacted tons of people that 
people may have not even known about before this happened. But then once it does happen, now now they're no they they, they know about it and it it allows them to look out for that and to care for their well being more. And the first case we're going to take a look at is uh, one in, involving the company Dupont uh, out of Virginia. There's a what's a pretty um, it's a really good movie. I've watched it. Uh, I think it maybe hasn't been seen by a ton of people. It's only been out for two or three years. Called Dark Waters. It involves uh, lawsuits filed against Dupont by a variety of Virginia residents. They've been mostly represented by one attorney named Robert uh, Billet. I hope I'm pronouncing that yeah, right. Yeah, it's either below or billet, one it's of the two. B-I-L-O-T-T. Uh, Mr. Billet was um, first hired by a Wilbur Tennant out of Parksburg, West Virginia, who was a cattle farmer, and his, his cattle just kept dying. Uh, he was convinced there was something wrong because, you know, while having an occasional cow go down uh, is is not unusual. Having repeated cattle dying is is something something's going wrong right unnatural amount of deaths and and he lived his farm was just downstream from a landfill that was used by dupont and they were pumping hundreds of tons of a acid goes by the acronym of pfoa it's called like perfluoroctanoic acid it's a really long word really hard to say but people didn't even know that this thing was a danger and what's crazy about this is that dupont and the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, they got together and they said, we'll commission a study on your farmer's, on the farmer's property, three veterinarians from DuPont, three veterinarians from the EPA. And they went there and they released a report basically saying that it was the tenant's fault. The dying cattle were due to poor husbandry, poor nutrition, inadequate veterinary care, and lack of flight control. And so it's crazy because nobody really even knew what they didn't. They didn't think that PFOAs were were harmful. So you know, they see that yeah, it's dumping it. But you know, this is also in a time where people just they didn't think that that was a bad thing. It's just water to them. It's it, there's nothing in that water that could be dangerous because the you would think the government would already know about it and would put in protections, or at least you would hope the company the company would put forth these protections. And so the EPA literally sided with Dupont, and they. Yeah, they blamed it on just poor nutrition, inadequate veterinary care. And if you watch the movie, there's not a lot. There, there's nothing that leaves you with the impression that these cattle weren't being properly cared for. But I think that's just what they decided they were going to settle on. One of the things that, that that's interesting, and and you hear and see a lot of the problems that comes from government regulatory agencies. I think most recent times, to get a little sidetracked from this case for just a second, if you look at the, the Boeing uh, issue with the jets that uh, were deciding they would go down uh, or land in the middle of oceans or wherever they happened to be and the pilots couldn't override it, uh, and then it comes out that the FAA had basically turned over much of their regulatory authority to Boeing to decide whether they were in compliance with things or not. I think this is kind of an example like that where you've got uh, these EPA uh, appointed veterinarians that come in and really are probably not diving into the, the yeah they're like just they they, you know they they come from the same profession they probably know each other they're from the same general area so they're probably like you know what do you guys think yeah I think that might be the same thing let's just 
it's easy to say that this tenant is being a bad tenant and wants to blame it on somebody else. It's easy to point the finger, um, especially when the other result would be pointing the finger at your potential friend or um, a, a compadre in your profession or whatever it is, you know, someone that's directly parallel to you and not someone that's, you know, you could argue that is beneath you, which you would think a farmer giving poor animal care would be such. Um, but that ended up not being the case. So Billet ended up, the, the attorney Billet discovered that thousands of tons of DuPont's PFOA had been dumped into the landfill next to the tenant's property and that DuPont's PFOA was contaminating the surrounding community's water supply as well. So it was getting into uh, well water, it was getting into the groundwater, and that's where a lot of our water supply comes from. DuPont settled the tenant's case once this was ended up being discovered. In August 2001, Billet filed a class action lawsuit against DuPont on behalf of approximately 70,000 people in West Virginia and Ohio with PFOA-contaminated drinking water, which was settled in September 2004 with class benefits valued at over $330 million, including DuPont agreeing to install filtration plants in the six affected water districts and dozens of impacted private wells, a cash reward of $70 million, and provisions for future medical monitoring to be paid by DuPont up to $235 million. If and an independent science panel confirmed probable links between PFOA and the drinking water and human disease. The thing that's so interesting about this to me is it started out as a little lawsuit over cattle that DuPont honestly probably could have settled for a relatively low amount of money. And they probably did. It doesn't, it, we didn't, I didn't see where it Well, but if they, had, that. if they had done that at the beginning, you know, just said, okay, look, farmer, we're not going to make any liability with our product here, but we're going to pay for your cattle. We're going to make sure that. Um, you know, you're taken care of. Instead of taking the initial routes, get these veterinarians involved and blame it on the cattler. Right. This maybe doesn't come to light, or makes years yeah, later. If he, if he never needed to get an attorney, if they never fought back and they're like, "Yeah, you're right. You know, don't bother with an attorney." This never would have been discovered. And at this point, they still didn't know how bad PFOA was as a chemical. They just knew that it was getting in the surrounding actual water supply, which was. People were drinking, and that's not something. Even if it's not harmful, you don't you don't want you don't know it's harmful at the moment. You know what I mean? So, and this was a product used um, in Teflon, the stuff yeah. that makes pots and pans uh, not stick to the food you cook. So that independent science panel ended up confirming that there was probable links between PFOA in the drinking water and human diseases, such as. High cholesterol, thyroid disease, kidney cancer, testicular cancer, preeclampsia, and ulcerative colitis. So, these this scientific panel would never have even been looking in this direction had this have not happened. And they set aside two hundred and thirty five million dollars just in case they came to this exact conclusion that they did. So now people know, like, hey, this can cause you serious issues. These serious issues that have been happening to people in this area. Is it because this quote unquote area is more prone to that, but it's in your water? And this was especially during a time where you would expect to drink out of the tap. You know, even today, people still do that a lot. I just stopped drinking out of the tap a few years ago. So it's kind of scary to think that, like, despite paying your water bill and you expect, you know, your water to be pure, they didn't even have filtration. As you see, I said earlier, they just now ended up putting, after they were paying out all that money, they put, like, six filtration plants, like, installed so that way the water is more clean 
and they fixed specific people's, uh, I think it was dozens or hundreds of actual wells because the groundwater was tampered with and it had this material to make Teflon in it. And I, I think there's some question as to just how reckless corporations can be when they do these kinds of things because any company like DuPont that deals with a lot of chemicals and materials, a huge cost for them is disposing of their waste. They have a lot of toxic waste and they have a lot of harmful waste. And I think a, a lot of it is, well, we'll just we'll just dump it here and hope nothing bad happens. I don't think anybody ever proved that DuPont specifically knew that this was going to be harmful for people. Um, but I think there may have also been a little bit of digging their head in the sand going on and yeah. saying, we're just going to put it here. It's cheap. Um, disposing of this properly is going to cost a lot of money. And we're just going to hope that nothing bad happens. And then once it does happen, they're you know saying, oh, crap, we got to go pay all this money. I think it is a little telling that they agreed ahead of time to put aside $235 million just in case this ends up being harmful to people. I mean, if if you felt it wasn't harmful to people, I don't know that you would agree to put right, aside $235 right. million. And then, oh, lo and behold, it takes about two minutes to figure out that <laughs> it is right. harmful to people. And as we mentioned with the Teflon, um, that it's been harming – I don't want to get – you know. I don't want to over-exaggerate it, but... It was tens of thousands of people in the West Virginia and Ohio population. It actually ends up getting even bigger than that. And kind of like how you were saying, let's assume that they didn't know whatsoever. They have the money to afford to be like, okay, well, if we are going to dump it here, let's run a scientific panel and see if it's harmful. You know, and if you really think about it, it is hard to dispose waste. I mean, you can't put it in the ground because chances are it's going to contaminate groundwater. You can't just dump it in a river because this is what happens. You can't dump it in the ocean because it's going to find its way into the food supply anyways. And so, you know, it's coming up with ways to purify it that are actually acceptable. Or contain it in a right. large, large scale. So they ended up getting more lawsuits by people, and they lost the first three for $19.7 million. In 2017, DuPont— Well, I think it's important to point out this attorney and how diligent he was. Because a lot of attorneys, they get that first, uh, you know, $300 million verdict— are going to sail away off into the sunset. And one of the really interesting parts about the movie is he is a partner in a bigger law firm. This takes years to develop. so And it's all he works on. Yeah, he gets so, it becomes all-encompassing to him. And his partners start coming to him and be like, all right, dude, you've been doing two years of this. No money's coming in for any of this. And they're getting pressure because DuPont's got a local... Uh, factory in in town. Just, People don't want to lose their jobs. Yeah, start start. You know, you, know, you got your, you got your money. Let's scale off of it. You know, he said you say start filing more thirty five hundred residents. Yeah. He signs up. Yeah, individual lawsuits. It's 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 easy for an employee of that place or to someone who has an employee of that place in your family to think that this is just a greedy ass lawyer trying to shut your company down. In reality, it's really not that. And the thing is, what's what's even crazier is if you know what banker boxes are. They dropped off like three big ass boxes full of paper because you know this was there wasn't digital anything, and they told him to just go through it and to find what he wanted. They could have, and they do that over and over again. Yeah, that that's a very recurring thing. That's why going after these companies is so hard because they're not going to make it easy on you. They're going to give you every unimportant file known to man, and in that, it literally the needle in that haystack will be the information that you're looking for. Maybe that they knew of it. Maybe that this proves a link to X, Y, or Z, anything like this. In 2017, after the losing the first three for 19.7 million, 
DuPont agreed to settle the remainder of the then pending cases for $671.7 million. Think, think about that. That's This is a really big moment in this case because, all right, big corporation has decided enough is enough. We're going to put our foot down. We'll go to trial. You, you, you're you going to file 3,500 lawsuits against this. Fine. We'll go to trial. They go to trial and lose the first three for almost $20 million. They're still another 3,400 in some cases right. So then pending. they just throw their hands up. <laughs> right. But it gets worse. It but gets even deeper. But that's 670 million. That's a lot. Yeah, but you also got to think, like, these people are most likely going to have some sort of cancer. Horrible. Horrible yeah, injuries. Yeah, they're, like, they're, it's going to be a very painful death. They need something to cover those medical bills to give them that quality of life that they lost out on due to a company's greed. Dozens of additional cases filed after the 2017 settlement were settled in 2021 for an additional $83 million. So it's almost a total of a billion. Announced in conjunction with another $4 billion settlement between DuPont and its spinoff, Camores, over PFAS liabilities. Now, remember what we were talking about before was PFOAs. Bringing the total settlement value in the personal injury cases for those exposed to PFOA and their drinking water to over $753 million. Now, the PFAS, that is a wider selection of chemicals that encompass PF, uh, PFOAs. So PFAS has PFOAs in it, and now they're starting to do research into PFAS. In 2018, Billet filed a new case seeking new studies and testing of the larger group of PFAS chemicals on behalf of a proposed nationwide class of everyone in the United States who has PFAS chemicals in their blood against several PFAS manufacturers, including 3M, the tape manufacturer, DuPont, and Chemors. This new litigation is ongoing as of May 2020. In March 2022, the federal court overseeing the case certified the case to proceed as a class, class action on behalf of millions of people with PFAS in their blood. So this turns from a local thing that encompasses, you know, a quarter of two states to end up finding out that it actually gets a lot deeper than this, and it's nationwide. And these well, are and things the, that is in people's water. The fact that the federal court has certified, I'm sure those companies fought that tooth and nail, but the fact that the court has now certified that case to proceed on as a class action on behalf of millions with the PFAS in the blood, that is, and, you know, at this point, this attorney's shown he's not backing down. Yeah. You want to take it to trial? Fine, let's take it to trial. This is the type of stuff that sinks ships. This ruins entire family dynasties. Yeah, yeah, and it and it's uh, a, a ton of credit to, to Mr. Billet, the amount of time, energy, Sacrifice, especially risk. with how rich he is now, he doesn't need to do this shit. Yeah, and he's it's a it's his life's mission at this point, right? Like it it goes deeper than money, which is what I was trying to say before. Due to his, but due he diligence, deserves the money. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, they the put him through a lot of work. I mean, for two years, think of every day you go to work, you work a forty hour work week at a minimum. You are just going through paper and making a case for two years straight. Your entire company is on your ass, busting your balls mad at you that you're not bringing an income. If he wasn't a partner in the firm and was like an actual valuable member who had a holding stake in the firm, he would have been fired. You know, he put his reputation on the line. If this didn't pan out, he was screwed. Yeah, I mean, you talk about dedicating your life to a cause and betting on yourself. I mean, that's that's certainly what, what he did here. Prime example of it. And, uh, you know, there's sort of to wrap this, this first story up, it, tons of money to these chemical companies, but also... Um, agreements on how they would be manufacturing and storing them in the future, installing new water plants and treatment facilities, tons of infrastructure, money put into the infrastructure to help these communities 
avoid these terrible consequences going forward, none of which happens without the efforts of that uh, attorney willing to put that that work there wasn't in. even studies for it like they didn't even know that the epa our own government went there and sided with dupont so you know you feel like most people would give up at that point they'd be like yeah it's it's so easy to point the finger and say it's this guy's fault it's this guy's fault the dupont took a huge risk when he they agreed to fund money based on independent scientists deciding whether or not there was a link to cancer and then obviously worst case scenario for them they say yes everybody's agreeing yeah, your, your your shit's causing people lots of problems. Yeah, and I'd, I'd be curious to hear about the uh, the private meetings that were requested between Dupont and the scientists <laughs> right. to really make sure. Are you sure this is what yeah, you found? Yeah, are you yeah, are you certain about this? Because we don't know. That, uh, no, no. Yeah, like it's a... easy to pay off a person. It's hard to pay off an entire county of people. And you know, now we we think of it. Oh well, yeah. Duh. Nowadays, energy companies hopefully are safe, but most likely, you know, there's something cancerous in the water. We've seen family members die, other people die, and we would think it's the water. There's been weird things in our water, even if it's, you know, state-controlled water. And these are things that are pretty obvious to us now, but at the time it was not, and it never would have been if it wasn't for this so-called ambulance chaser that I'm assuming so many people then, and if they're still alive, still think of him as a greedy scumbag who was going after a company for no reason, and because of all these funds, it may have had some people lost their jobs. But losing a job versus dying slowly of cancer aren't even comparable things. Yeah, he's a, he's a true hero. I would recommend anybody that hasn't uh, that's listening to, to our podcast, check out the movie Dark Walters. What, Dark Waters? Dark Walters? Dark Walters. Dark, the Dark Waters. Sequel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's it's a fantastic watch. It's If you're an attorney listening... Uh, it'll reinvigorate you in terms of uh, the the things that we do and why we do them. Uh, so I recommend it. But even for just uh, you know the average person, it, it it'll make you you know question uh, government regulation and their thoroughness, corporations and their decision making process, and also the value that an, a, a a dedicated lawyer can bring to society to health to the, the, the well-being of a bunch of individuals that were very, you'll see it's a very poor community that was struck by this originally that started this. And this, this guy changed the dynamic completely. So, I mean, what's the difference between Walter White and DuPont, DuPont's water? Nothing. <laughs> They're pushing harmful chemicals. Then right, there's no right. difference. It's going to fuck your life up no matter who you get it from, whether it's meth or whether you drink your freaking tap water. And at least uh, Walter White's customers know they're doing it. Right, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's not just being sprinkled into their drinking water. Yeah, and right. he, he cared about making it pure and as clean as possible. And That's the, right. You know, the chemi- chemical integrity of it. <laughs> uh, we're going to uh, shift now, taking a look at another case. This one's probably better, not probably, is is. is Better known. Known, but on the negative side of things. It is, and that's the sort of the infamous um, McDonald's case. Laybeck v. McDonald's restaurants. Yeah, fill us in a little bit, Devin, on the, the background of that one. So Stella May Laybeck was her name. She was born in Norwich, England, and she was born in 1912. She was 79 years old at the time of the burn incident. On February 27, 1992, Laybeck ordered a 49-cent cup of coffee from the drive through window of an Albuquerque McDonald's restaurant at 5,001 Gibson Boulevard, Boulevard Southeast. Labeck was in the passenger seat of a 1989 Ford Probe, which did not have cup holders. This is important. Her grandson parked by, the car. By the way, 
for those of you that weren't around back then, 1989 Ford Probe was sort of the uh, sporty little hot commodity vehicle. Uh, had one of the first vehicles that had a more rounded shape as opposed to the square shape Boxy. that you saw back then. Yep, yep. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. So her grandson parks the car. He was the one driving, and she wants to add cream and sugar to her coffee. She places the coffee between her knees and pulled the far side of the lid toward her to remove it. In the process, she spilled the entire cup of coffee on her lap. She was wearing cotton sweatpants. It absorbed the coffee and held it against her skin, scalding her thighs, but in groin. She was taken to a hospital where it was determined that she had suffered third-degree burns on 6% of her skin and lesser burns over 16%. You got to think, this is an old lady, and it was stuck to her skin. Like, you would have to strip naked the bottom half of you in in the in McDonald's parking lot. And even if you are willing to do that, she was moving pretty slow, you know. So this was like, you can imagine how painful that would be. And we'll talk about how the hot the coffee was. She stayed in the hospital for eight days while she underwent skin grafting. During this period, she lost 20 pounds, nearly 20% of her body weight, reducing her to 83 pounds. After the hospital stay, Labeck needed care for three weeks, which was provided by her daughter, who took off work. Labeck suffered permanent disfigurement after the incident was partially disabled for two years. She attempts to settle. She contacts McDonald's for $20,000. She just wants to cover her actual and anticipated medical expenses. Her past medical expenses were ten thousand five hundred. Her anticipated future medical expenses were approximately twenty five hundred, and her daughter's loss of income was approximately five thousand dollars for approximately eighteen thousand dollars. This was because of her daughter taking off work. Instead, the company offered only eight hundred dollars. McDonald's refused to raise its offer. Laybeck retained a Texas attorney, Reed Morgan. Morgan filed a suit in the U.S. District Court for the District of New Mexico accusing McDonald's of gross negligence for selling coffee that was unreasonably dangerous and defectively manufactured. McDonald's refused Morgan's offer to settle for $90,000, which they're really going to regret later. Morgan offered to settle for $300,000, which they also would have been better off taking, and mediator suggested $225,000 just before trial. McDonald's refused both. They were going to take this to trial, and they were ready. You want to to continue it? Yeah, so at that point... Uh, the trial takes place back in August of 1994 uh, in New Mexico. The attorneys discovered that McDonald franchises were required by the corporation to hold their coffee at 180 to 190 degrees. Uh, a lot of research out there said that really coffee shouldn't be served any hotter than 140 degrees. And a number of other establishments that had coffee as a, as a, a substantial product they sold uh, would sell it at 140 degrees. Yeah, none of, none of the companies sold it at 180, 190 degrees. They all sold it at around the 140 range. The attorneys presented video evidence that the coffee had, they had tested all over the city was served at a temperature at least 20 degrees lower than McDonald's coffee. They also presented the jury with expert testimony that 190-degree coffee may produce third-degree burns where skin grafting is necessary in about three seconds, and 180-degree coffee may produce such burns in about 12 to 15 seconds. So in 10 seconds, it's a massive amount of time. They go even deeper with it. Lowering the temperature to 160 degrees would increase the time for the coffee to produce such burns to 20 seconds. Labex attorneys argued that these extra seconds could provide adequate time to remove the coffee from exposed skin, thereby preventing many burns. McDonald's claimed that the reason for serving such hot coffee in its drive through windows was that those who purchased the coffee typically were commuters who wanted to drive a distance with the coffee. The high initial temperature would keep the coffee hot during the trip, However, it came to light that McDonald's had carried out research, finding out that customers intend to consume the coffee immediately while driving. So they did their own research. 
and, and they found other documents. That, that's the marketing research where you know they're trying to figure out you know what would make our customers happy. Right. Which that, you can that, understand. That from really that came point. back to bit him in the ass. Well, the and, and and the you know the thing that I don't know that they necessarily think about when they're looking at those things is if somebody spills it on them, it's it's on their clothing, so they can't just stop it burning it them. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. it's absorbed in their fabric, so they need time to be able to get it off of their skin. To avoid these things. And if you just lowered it by 20 degrees, that gave people an extra 20 seconds. I mean, that's a huge amount of time. Now, see, coming from a capitalist, I can understand, like, they want to make their customers happier. They want uh, a niche in the market. So I get where they're coming sort of from. Sort hottest coffee. Well, 140 right. degrees is hot. I used to, yes. I, won't, I won't name it. I used to work at a, at a sandwich chain. We served soup, and uh, we were supposed to serve the soup at 140 degrees. And if I would spoon it into the bowl and it would splash onto my hand... I would drop it right away and get that that soup off my hand as quickly as I could. Um, 140 degrees is is very yeah, hot. Yeah, that's hot. You're not you're not putting it in your mouth at that temperature. No. But the next documents are pretty damning. So more documents they obtained from McDonald's showed that from 1982 to 1992, so a period of a decade, the company had received more than 700 reports of people burned by McDonald's coffee to varying degrees of severity and had settled claims arising from scalding injuries for more than $500,000. McDonald's quality control manager. Christopher Appleton testified that this number of injuries was insufficient to cause the company to evaluate its practices. He argued that all foods hotter than 130 degrees con- cons- constituted a burn hazard. Well, duh. And that restaurants had more pressing dangers to worry about. The plaintiffs argued that Appleton conceded that McDonald's coffee would burn the mouth and throat if consumed when served. So you're just assuming that all your customers aren't drinking it immediately. And not only that, but you know people are getting injured from it. Well, and if, if you... <laughs> If it if consumed immediately, it's going to cause burns to the place you're supposed to put it. Yeah, and I, I'd be curious to hear about some of these other cases and how bad they were. I mean, this lady had third degree burns on the last part of your body that you would want to have third degree burns. Yeah, when they, they say groin, I mean she had in her, on her area. Well, I mean, they they offered terrible. her eight hundred dollars, and according to this, they settled some other cases at more than five hundred thousand dollars. So what happened to those people? Well, and and so the. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, they gave her eight hundred. How bad were these people fucked up to give out five hundred thousand? It always and so people know that in the personal injury world, well over ninety five percent of the cases settle prior to trial, and so these companies will settle cases, settle cases, settle cases, and as long as the cost value is still there to them, they'll just continue to operate. And the way it takes somebody willing to actually go to trial and hammer the hell out of them before they'll start changing things, and that that does eventually happen. Um, in the in the McDonald's case, um, the jury ends up hitting or hitting McDonald's with a huge verdict. McDonald's still tries to sort of, after the fact, play it off as you know this is just ridiculous. Well, they spent control. money on an ad campaign. They bought journalists. They they ran news stories about how she was greedy and how she was stupid. And it's the vast consensus that she was a moron. I mean, you bring it up today and. About 50%, 60% of the people are going to be like, yeah, she you was an idiot. coffee between your legs. And reality, yeah. And it's like, you know, people spill stuff all the time. You never plan to fucking spill something, but it happens. And you the, you could argue that she's not greedy at all. She asked for 20000 because it covered her, so- her cost. That was it. No pain and suffering. No nothing. The jury ended up awarding her a, a net $160,000 in c- compensatory damages. And that's just to cover medical expenses. $2.7 million, equivalent to $5 million in 2021, in punitive damages. The equivalent of only two days of McDonald's coffee sales. So you see, 
just the potential of how many people could get hurt. And there's those, those are those little golden pieces of information that the plaintiff's attorneys can use in those cases. Ladies and gentlemen, and what we're asking you to do, McDonald's not world will make ending. it. Yeah, McDonald's will make that back in two days of just coffee sales. They've made it during the jerk duration of this trial. Yeah, while this trial's going on, they've already paid for this. Just in coffee sales, not Big Macs. And, yeah, and, and a fraction of their business. And this kind of cost-benefit assessment is something that a lot of companies do when uh, evaluating different liabilities that may have. And it's not a case we're going to get into, but a lot of people might be aware of it. It's, it's the old Ford Pinto case. Where yeah, I wanted you guys to talk about that. Well, just, that up. It's basically Ford did the math and determined that they were paying out a certain number of dollars per death. And then it was going to cost them a certain number of dollars to actually fix the vehicles. And they decided it was going to be way cheaper for them to just pay off the deaths of everybody who was dying in their cars. It was going to cost them $11 per car to fix the car. But they sold so many of them, it was going to cost them a ton of money to fix all these. So they figured, you know what, we'll just keep, you know, taking the people as they die and we'll pay off, you know, any death, uh, death benefits or lawsuits that, that they may have. Um and go about our business because the way we're doing it now is cheaper, even though it's it's very dangerous to our drivers. Right, and they were argued they weren't negligent for that because because they set money aside for people to die and pay for it because when the car got hit at a certain angle, it explode. It would literally explode. Because they put money aside to cover that, they were not negligent. They knew it was going to happen. They just didn't warn the consumer. But because of that, when people brought forth negligent claims, they lost. Surprisingly, they lost. The judge sided with forward. And only when people brought forth that they weren't adequately informed of what they were purchasing and the risks that came with such, because that is written in our laws for a reason. That's when they actually won their lawsuit to an extent. They still didn't win what they think. And I understand it, it seems so stupid that there's that there's uh, stickers everywhere saying, don't put your finger on this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And it's like, well, duh, that's common sense. But a lot of it they put in common sense areas just so you can't sue later. I mean, if you stick your hand in a lawnmower and you sever your damn hand and you learn that you could sue and win $2 million, you're going to tell me you're not going to do that? Like, come on, you just lost your damn hand. Got a little stitch mark in the middle of my finger. That's from sticking it in a uh, operating snowblower to clear out the snow. Okay. <laughs> and there was probably stickers that said not to do that. There was. I didn't sue anyone. I su- oh, no, no, no litigation I, pending on that? Acknowledged my stupidity. <laughs> I, my thought process was when the snowblower blades crunchers were turning, that would help me clear out the snow that was stuck in the chute. So I held it to keep them operating while sticking my hand in the chute at the same time. Not very smart. Well, we all learn things in different but ways. But that, that's why people doing stupid shit like that is why those stickers exist. <laughs> yeah, there is. But, I mean, you can't imagine you lost your finger and then you realize, wait a minute, I could sue these people for half a million. Yeah, well, if there wasn't a sticker, you know what it I probably mean? so, would have worked. So, you know, in cases like that, it's like that's where the argument comes that people are greedy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you can't tell me you wouldn't do the same thing. It's easier to get a holier-than-thou attitude. But Well, and if just... there's a risk to something and the company knows it in the way they design their products, sometimes you can't avoid risk, but you should warn people about it. Right, yeah, and, and it's, written, it's written in our legislation where you have to inform the risk because of things that weren't so obvious that caused severe injury. That Ford Pinot one, though, for those who don't know, the, the, there's actually a memo where they calculate the – the value of losing someone's life, comparing it to the value of the car, it's just so... If you want to know the number, they calculated it at $200,000 per death. So um, some of you might feel that number. It was 1970s, granted, but 
Still, yeah, so probably like five hundred thousand dollars. But your life is worth half a million. I mean, to to just put that in writing and something that you know could come out someday, right? And there's still just, a crazy big company that people buy from now and don't look at because their marketing is so well in that regard. Just a crass, crass decision. And back there's then. there's so many things that are like common sense now. Like if your airbag goes off, you have a chance to get knocked unconscious. Like we know that, but imagine if like that was never brought to your attention. And you thought your car had these safety devices that would shoot out a pillow and keep you safe when you got in an accident. You'd be totally fine. You don't prepare for the fact that you're about to get knocked the fuck out. Right. You know what I mean? You don't prepare for that. And you may be in a worse predicament had you prepared at least mentally for that. Didn't wake up unconscious on the side of the road. So, you know, it's easy to think like, oh, well, we know this now. Yeah, but we may not know this if we weren't warned from the very beginning. Well, we touched a little bit about the Boeing incident with the, you know, the the uh, Max 80 or Max 8s or whatever uh, they yeah, were, the, the 800s yeah. uh, that were deciding when they would descend on their own. Uh, there's some memos there that have been pretty damning. Those are going to come out in lawsuits, and it's going to make uh, some of the Boeing engineers um, and the practices that they uh, overlooked. I mean, planes are as safe as they are because of redundancy and the little device on the side of the plane that was telling the plane it was going a direction it wasn't. It was making its autopilot make the plane nosedive to avoid a stall it wasn't about to have. Uh, It was an option to have another one of those on the other side of the plane. If this one fails and this one's working, it would cancel this one out. But they only had the one. And, And that's why... You know, that's why there's two engines. Planes can fly with one engine, but they right. have two for a reason. That's why there's two pilots. That's why they right. go over a checklist. Even though they've done it a million times, they still do the checklist. There's backup electrical lines. Everything has got redundancies built into it. So that's something they're going to probably pay a price for is the they, – they, you can't make safety an option. And that's – you're starting to see that in automobiles too. And it used to be airbags was an upgrade. And <laughs> Really? To, oh, yeah. A car, my first cars didn't have airbags. That's crazy. And, but then when they first came out, the luxury cars had them and nobody else did. And now, you know, you see the, the blindside warnings, the um, your steering wheel the jerks. Maybe closer your, than they appear. It, yeah, the steering wheel jerks if you start to leave your lane. I'm sure your Jeep is covered in rollover warnings. It is. Yes, it is. So uh, all these standard safety, the backup camera. Backup cameras didn't used to be standard. Yeah, those you are know? nice. Kids, those are godsend. kids were getting ran over. So they decided, you know what? This $25 extra piece is not going to break our company to include. And a lot of the... And it becomes selling points. Well, and you see, um, especially Honda, Kia, Hyundai, a lot of the um, overseas companies, uh, and now the American ones are catching up to too. All those things are starting to become standard. And mandatory. Anti-lock brakes. Yeah. Those were not standard. That was an upgrade. (laughs) That's silly. They're yeah. clearly safer. Your brakes to lock up when you need them because the only time that they're going to lock up is when you're slamming on them. Like, yeah, and it, it, it's a clear thing that makes it safer right. to drive. But it took time before they would just implement. Now, I think, and because a lot of these kind of lawsuits you're seeing, those things are becoming standard, which they should be. If technology advances uh, safety, it's a safety-related item, it should be uh, something that's included in the and, Yeah, and it's easy to be like, oh, well, I would never drive that fast behind a school bus and have my brakes lock up and I run over a kid anyways. But, you know, shit happens. Like, how do you know a kid isn't going to run in front of your car or a dog and you're just not, you well, know, no patch of ice that you didn't anticipate. If, I mean, if you knew that a bad event was going to happen, that bad event would not happen. They only happen when you're not expecting it. So this next one is honestly pretty sad. This was related to asbestos. 
is Borel versus Fiberboard Paper Products Corporation. Clarence Borel was an insulator who developed mesothelioma and asbestos from his exposure to asbestos, which occurred for approximately 33 years. Borel v. Fiberboard Paper Products Corporation is a landmark decision in asbestos litigation in the United States, providing pre- precedence for, for thousands of products liability cases. First, for personal injury claims when asbestos workers, their families, and their loyal lawyers filed suit against asbestos companies for financial rewards for diseases and death, and later for property damage claims when school districts and other public entities and their lawyers filed suit against asbestos companies for the cost of removing asbestos products from public buildings. Can we, can we call it asbestos instead of asbestos? Is, is that like the right way to say it? I don't know. I've seen a lot of commercials. Asbestos. Yeah, saying asbestos. Asbestos, asbestos. But I don't. It could be tomato, tomato. I don't know. Yeah, that's fair. Asbestos is a group of minerals which, for many years, was used to manufacture insulation and fire prevention products, which were widely used in the United States and elsewhere, elsewhere in the world. The asbestos products were often friable. That is, they released tiny invisible fibers, which, when inhaled by human beings, sometimes produced asbestos, asbestosis, asbestosis, mesothelioma, and other dangerous diseases. Often there was a long latency period, sometimes 20 to 40 years, between inhalation of the asbestos materials and the onset of disease. So you could work on a, a school or something, you help build it, and 30 years later you end up super sick. And, of course, you would not blame the asbestos. People didn't know a damn thing about this, and it was used everywhere. Like yeah, lead well, paint, it was used everywhere. When 20 to 30 years pass, yeah, and know, everybody's yeah, dying oh, from the same back thing. back to that day when I was... Doing that insulation project, you know. You know, it's crazy. And it was also a a cumulative exposure thing. If you just did it one time, probably okay. These these guys working in this uh, environment on a daily basis, really, it's a devastating disease. I mean, picture it. It's tiny little glass and plastic shards going into your lungs. Right. So there's one particularly alarming application that I found, and uh, there's a particular kind of asbestos called uh, micronite. Um, apparently, I don't know anything about asbestos. It just it said that this was the most dangerous kind, and there was a company where they produced uh, a cigarette company. They produced uh, asbestos filter cigarettes uh, called Kent oh Micronite cigarettes from 1952 to 1956, where the cigarette filters was made of asbestos. So That's insane. You were just directly inhaling it um, along with your Heat all your all your rat car- all your carcinogens, as well, <laughs> right? Just to really spice it up. Literally a cancer thing. And what's crazy now is we're like, well, duh, asbestos, don't ever use that shit, you know? But we didn't know that then. And it's things like this that make that possible. Well, it, it was used in insulation, uh, brake, Everywhere. brake pads. Um, and brake I, pads, you know, they grind off material. So that's just getting thrown up into the air. Yeah. I was working in a, I worked a construction job, and this would have been in the 1990s, um, where uh, floor tile, we were chipping up floor tile, and it was, you can tile on top of tile, and it had been tiled like six or seven layers deep. And they came over and said, hey, once you get down to layer three or four, there's probably asbestos in the tile. And so the stuff we had to wear. Like hazmat suits? Yeah, you had full suits, full respirator masks. Wow. And these guys were just breathing it in every day and destroying their lungs. I mean, super sad. Asbestos claims are still going on today because the exposure oh, yeah, it's takes a big so long. Thing. Uh, there's firms that do nothing but that, and to the tune of millions and millions, billions of dollars. Yeah, I'd say billions. And this is these are people just going to work. For example, you know, my grandpa isn't affected by asbestos, as, as I would know, but he he did clean out, he did hazard, like, 
cleanup for uh, a women's hospital. And he said down in the basement, he had like reached up on a ledge and was like sweeping off all the stuff they had. And he got pricked by a needle. And he just got diagnosed with, uh, I think it was hepatitis C. That's the one you can get from needles. So, wow. yeah. So it's that one. He got that. He just got diagnosed two, three years ago. And he said when he got diagnosed with it, the one thing that he thought back of is when he got pricked by that needle. And, you know, your brain has weird ways in working. I, I bet fully but that that probably is what he got pricked by. Because, you know, he probably got pricked by it and was like, oh, that might not be good. And then put it in the back of his brain for the rest of his life till he gets diagnosed with something. And that's where that memory resurfaces. Well, and a lot of, um, a lot of lung disorders, people get uh, COPD. Um, there's a lot of chronic lung disease where they just – by the time you find out you have it, not knowing what you've done all your life, because uh, histoplasmosis is exposure to bird poop, uh, breathing in bird poop. What? Yeah. Wow. So, like, if you've okay. had birds that were nesting in the attic of your house and you didn't know it and they were pooping all over it, you can actually get a disease from that in your lungs. I'm going to fucking die then. I, ha- I played with a lot of birds when I was young. Yeah. So, there was, there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> okay. there's a lot of weird things that can happen. So, to be able to go back and figure it out, luckily, and again, this is because of the lawyers that got involved. They did the work. They found out this is, you know, through autopsies and everything else, this is what it looks like when you've breathed in asbestos. Yeah, asbestos it, it looks terrible. No longer used in all types of products. And there, I think there are still some applications that it gets used in where there's no um, likelihood of any exposure to someone. Or if there is, it's, it's warned. If you see now... Um, insulation around pipes, especially old pipes. A lot of those have asbestos. If they're redoing piping, if they're redoing insulation and walls, you will see now buildings be sealed off, full hazmat suits yeah. to be removal. The, the products have to be stored in special types of disposable bags. Um, and that's all because waste. the attorneys delved into this and figured yeah. out how devastating this product was. Uh, they had a lot of really good... Uh, applications. Matter of fact, people tell you that brake pads don't last as long because they don't have asbestos anymore. So there was a lot of good, useful applications to it, but it can't be at the expense of just unbeknowingly killing people. Killing people very slowly, horrible deaths. So in the Borrell case, uh, Ward Stevenson was a lawyer from Orange, Texas, and he represented Clarence Borrell, the same guy who was a union worker who lived in the nearby town of Groves, and he was employed many years as an insulator in local refineries and shipyards and was fatally ill with pulmonary asbestos and mesothelioma, a form of lung cancer. Now, Ward Stephenson had failed before. He had lost plot products, liability cases, and personal injury suits. But this one, he ended up going, um, he made customary charges against the asbestos manufacturers, accusing them of negligence and a breach of warranty. But he broadened his attack this time, arguing that the manufacturers should also be subject to the doctrine of strict liability, a doctrine amended recently by the American Law Institute. The revised doctrine was set forth in Section 402A of the Restatement of the Law of Torts, Second, which was compiled by national committees of scholars, jurists, and lawyers and published in 1965. The new doctrine of strict liability was officially adopted in Texas by the Texas Supreme Court in 1967. Based on the new provisions of Section 402A, Stephenson charged that the asbestos manufacturers were subject to the doctrine of strict liability, arguing that their products were unreasonably dangerous because they did not carry adequate warnings of foreseeable dangers associated with them. As presented by Stephenson, the Borel case became the first litigation in the United States to test the application of Section 402A to asbestos materials. So because of him, we can now sue these people and these companies that don't follow 
the Section 402A of strict liability. Now, we don't know the exact number at this moment of what he ended up winning, but I will say that he ended up dying while trial proceedings were going on. He died of his mesothelioma and his pulmonary asbestosis, and his wife had to continue the trial for him, and they ended up winning at the end. So you can see how these are... This this is real things impacting people's life. You die in the middle of trial, like of the things that you got from the asbestos. Like, how can that be more proof for a juror? Yeah, it's a sad. That's a very sad case, and obviously it teed off what's become decades long litigation. What is now common sense? Yeah, they've got they've got asbestos courts where the federal federal class action lawsuits are still being processed because. It became so overwhelming because the number of people harmed by it that they had to create its own entity to, to handle the, the volume of the claims. And obviously that resulted in um, this product not being used and exposed to the public anymore, which is you know ultimately the goal. Um, you know, in this episode, we hope you get out of this is there's a lot of you know talk about, you know, you see, People uh, on the billboards, uh, crushing semis with their hammers and doing all types of things like that that, you know, sometimes make for a bit of a negative impression on uh, attorneys that do these kind of cases. But if you look at the societal impact that has happened, the forced changes on corporations to become uh, more aware, more safety oriented and be responsible when they aren't. Uh, that's a pretty important role in society. Yeah, and you can argue that sometimes we go the other direction too far. Like I would say that truckers are persecuted very hard and they can lose their entire way of making money. And For it, what's an accident for, many yeah, times. What's an, what's an accident, a genuine accident. And, you know, it just it's to keep in mind the fact that, you know, hopefully one day that they can come and bring fixes about it. When you're going for a perfect shot, you don't always get it in the first stroke. You know, sometimes you underswing, sometimes you overswing. It's all about finding that perfect mark between company efficiency and making profit while at the same time keeping its citizens healthy and not making profit at the expense of citizens' health. So that'll wrap up our episode. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, If you enjoyed our episode, make sure you like it, share it, spread the word. We appreciate that. And we'll see you next time on the next episode of Puckalaw Talks. Thank you.